You know, in the midst of all of the chaos of late, people forget that we're in the middle of an election year. Uh, we had a lot of Super Tuesday primaries that went on very recently. Uh, what you may not realize is there were polls that were taken by a lot of news agencies to find out what people cared about the most in this election. And it was shocking during the Democratic primaries how many people, like 40% had said, that they're looking for a candidate who can unite the country. Man, everybody's talking about how divided we are these days. But I want to entertain a question for a moment, and that is, why are we divided in the first place? Um, you know, I think a lot of times when that question comes up, people do a lot of finger pointing. You know, well, if they would sort of get their act together or if they would do the same thing as we do. There's times where I wonder if, you know, we don't sort of feel like a bunch of kindergarten playground bullies in the way in which we try to achieve unity. <clears throat> but, you know, not all the speculation on our disunity as a country is sort of as elementary in that, as that. There's actually in the last few years a certain number of um, philosophers who have started to look into the question of what divides us. And over and over again, more of them are, are suggesting that the reason we're divided go back to identity issues. Dr. Kwame Apaya is a professor of philosophy and law at NYU and wrote a book called The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity. And his book is basically a description of these, what he calls labels that we use uh, to create our identity. And what he says people forget is the fact that people can have multiple labels that will oftentimes compete for our attention and thereby determine how we act. Uh, when I'm at home, I have a father label. When I'm with my family, I have a, 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 a father. When I'm at the church, I have a pastor label. <clears throat> but what I found interesting about the way he describes this is how problems arise when we're managing these identities. He says this. He says, I think we run into danger when we allow our identities to push us around to make us do things we don't actually want to do or need to do just because that's what a black person would do or that's what a white person would do or that's what a Republican person would do. These identities can make demands uh, of all sorts on us and often that can overwhelm who we are as unique individuals. And isn't that interesting? In other words, he's saying our identities have power to literally push us around, to make us do things that we either want or don't want to do, to make demands to us. I think that's really rare for us to think of our identities as being the thing that empowers us to deal with how we know the world. I think there's a lot to say for what Dr. Apaya is saying, mostly because we've arrived at this sort of section in the book of Ephesians where Paul has unpacked the first three chapters of this glorious gospel, and now he's looking at what life looks like in light of all that truth. And basically what he's saying is this, is the transformation that Jesus is coming to bring in your life is going to affect to the deepest parts of what you call you. The Christian life, therefore, is a big identity issue through and through. And so Paul's reasoning is not really rocket science. He's simply saying there are certain events in your life that are so dramatic, so cataclysmic, that nothing can be the same after that event happens. Um, like getting married. You get married and you suddenly realize nothing's going to be the same. It's the same thing with children as well. You realize nothing's going to be the same after that. I remember coming home one particular um, afternoon uh, when my children were very small, and I caught Ginger sitting on the couch just sort of in a heap, and just chaos scattered all around her. You know, there's the sort of crumbled uh, uh, goldfish crumbs into the carpet. There's sippy cups all over the house, just everywhere, as every preschool-aged child house knows. And I remember looking at her and saying, hey, honey, are you okay? And she just kind of grunted. She's like, I'm trapped. No one is going to take care of these children if I don't. 
And it was as if she was coming to grips with this fact that everything that she knew about herself now has to be reoriented around the needs of desperately needy children. And so Paul is simply saying, look, the Christian story is that God is coming to unite this fragmented world under the headship of Jesus. And he's trying to bring about this unity rather than disintegration. But God has introduced something so earth shattering, so foundational to your personality and to the world around you, that nothing that you do from here and out can ever be the same. And so he opens with this metaphor in verse 17 when he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, don't walk like those who haven't had this foundational transformation happen to them. What's the implication? Well, followers of Jesus have learned to really think very differently about themselves. So much so they can't walk in the way in which they used to. But my whole point this morning is this, is Christianity is an identity issue. And so any investment that you make into it is going to radically affect how you live. So I want to unpack three ideas in in searching this out. First of all, what you were. Second of all, what you have become. And third of all, what you are called to become. Let's see if we can't dive into this. First of all, what is it that you were? Look, Paul's whole point in verses 17 through 19 is that Christians were not to walk like we used to, like Gentiles. Verse 17 says, you must, quote, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Hey, look for a second. Don't be put off by what Paul may look like to your ears of caricaturing all non-Jews with that term Gentiles. But he's actually not calling anybody out. What he's talking about is, is the way of the Gentile. Uh, or what we might say, the manner of living uh, that pushes the living God out to the periphery of life. How about that? And that life, he says, is marked by a word. And that word is the word futility. When you translate that word in the Old and the New Testament, it ends up referring to something that's pointless. It also, in other places, can refer to something that's deceptive. And what Paul says, though, is that this pointlessness, this futility, as it unpacks, it creates that futility where? In their minds. This is an amazing, astounding statement because Paul is saying that in the minds of those people who have pushed God out of their lives, their thinking, their rationality has become pointless. And it's pointless in some measure because they're being deceived. That's why Paul talks about it as being a darkened understanding and alienated from the life of God. This is actually an incredible insight if you'll really grasp it. I'm going to do my best to explain it because it's not the first time Paul's talked about this. If you go back to Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and following, Paul talks about these people, uh, about all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, here's the phrase, suppress the truth. Now listen to this. Paul thinks that the reason why people reject God, live like a Gentile does, is not because they had good reasons to do so. That's not the reason. My wife and I years ago were watching a TV show, where the, a science show, where they were interviewing um, uh, some atheistic philosopher. And the interviewer asked the philosopher, he said, you know, what happens if you get to your death and you die and you suddenly are standing before a God? And that God looks at you and says, why didn't you believe in me? And this philosopher didn't miss a beat. He looked at the interview and he said, oh, that's easy. I would look at God and I would say, you didn't give me enough evidence to believe in you. Isn't that what we just naturally think? We look and we realize, you know, those atheist people, they just can't take things by faith like we do. They're not ready for this intellectual leap into the darkness. 
And oftentimes you've got people who kind of apologize for being Christians because we're caricatured as anti-intellectual by skeptical people. Well, here's my point. Paul is not going to have any of this. Commentator Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. Intellectual pointlessness is rooted not in the hiddenness of God's truth, but as Paul says in the last part of verse 18, due to their hardness of heart. Okay, go back a couple of weeks to our discussion of what the Bible calls the heart. Remember that our heart is not just a place from which our emotions come, but also our choices and our conscience and, yes, even our thinking. So what that means is is when we reject God, we don't do it for intellectual reasons, Paul says. Rather, we do it for moral reasons, for spiritual reasons. In other words, when someone says they don't believe in God, Paul says that behind all of their intellectualizing is simply someone who doesn't like God. Listen again to Ferguson. He says, in the end, intellectual rejection of God is a mode of the human heart's attempt to keep God at a safe distance. Let me see if I can illustrate this this way. I wonder how many of you have ever been in the heartbreak of having to try to be near someone, counsel someone who's going through the heartbreak of an eating disorder. Um, Some of you may have suffered through that heartbreak yourself, but I can imagine that you would understand, most of all, that evidence really was not their problem. You know, friends can come up to someone who's suffering in that respect all day long and say, oh, what are you talking about? You look great. You've gotten too thin. But every time they look in the mirror, what they see with their minds are nothing but flaws. They see weight. And here's my question. How do you account for that? Because the way Paul accounts for it is to say, look, human beings in their natural estate, we are not objective arbitrators of truth. As a matter of fact, human beings will bend the truth that comes into our minds in order to forget, to, to, to sort of justify the commitments we've already made in our hearts. Does that make sense? In other words, Paul is saying that you just are not predisposed at first to like the God of the Bible. And because you don't like him, that's going to radically affect the conclusions you end up reaching about whether he exists or whether I should follow him, or whatever. Look, here's the point. You're just not going to make any progress in your understanding of Christianity until you answer this question, why am I sort of struggling? Why am I opposed to the existence of this God? And what Paul is saying, whatever answer you come up with that, it's not because you lack evidence. Quite the contrary. You have too much evidence. You just don't like what you see. That's different. Before we move on to the second point, I think it's important to notice that Paul talks about the net result of this this futility that people are living, and that is an out-of-control life. Verse 19 says this, Having become callous, they have become greedy for impurity. Paul there is talking about sexual impurity. The reason why he brings that up is because he's using the language of addiction. The broader context of meaningfulness in life, if you lack that, if you lack that meaningfulness, in which, by the way, true sexuality sort of blooms, you go to the imitation of that sort of meaningfulness, which is wanton sexuality. But here's the rub. Sexuality, that sexuality now has you a whole lot more than you have it. But look, here's the truth. It's not just sex that Paul's referring to. We're actually going to talk about this a whole lot next week. Paul actually says, our lust can be for anything that keeps me from feeling uh, so dead inside. 
Henry Nouwen is a great Christian philosopher who says this. He says, aren't you like me, hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along to give you that final feeling of inner well-being you desire? Don't you often hope, may this book, idea, course, trip, job, country, or relationship fulfill my deepest desire? But as long as you're waiting for that mysterious moment, you will go on running helter-skelter, always anxious and restless, always lustful and angry, never fully satisfied. You know that this is the compulsiveness that keeps us going and busy, but at the same time makes us wonder whether we are getting anywhere in the long run. This is the way to spiritual exhaustion and burnout. This is the way to spiritual death. And that's it. What you were, Paul says, is spiritually dead, marked by frustration and pointlessness and unfulfilled desires. So the next question we want to ask is, well, how in the world do we get out of that? So that's the first point, what you were. But secondly, Paul goes on to talk about what you have become. So what is Christianity's remedy for this addiction? We'll look at verse 20. Paul says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. You know, Sinclair Ferguson makes this very interesting uh, observation there when he says that actually that's really bad English if you think about it. Because the verb to learn, you know, does not take a subject that's a personal name. You know, you'd normally say, well, that's not the way you learned about Christ or something like that. Well, what does Paul mean? He means that becoming a Christian is not simply learning about Jesus. That maybe he did something or maybe he said something, but it's about learning him. It means coming into a communion and fellowship that is so profound that all he is imprints himself on all we are. In other words, Paul is digging back again into this idea of union with Christ. Here it is again. And the illustration that he gives next is really trying to help people unpack what he means. Because what he says is, and the way this happens is, is he says, we are to put off the old self and we're to put on the new self. An old self and a new self. That's the difference that God makes when he makes someone a Christian. And look, don't, don't get tripped up on that language. I think this is a marvelous way of talking about this great fact, which is that becoming a Christian is an entire identity change. If you're a Christian, you no longer are who you once were. Verse 22, it says that this renewal in the spirit of our minds means that Paul is inviting us into looking at the psychology of our struggle with, the, uh, with uh, sin in an entirely different way. Uh, Tim Keller in his little book, uh, Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, says this. He says, if we build our lives on anything but God and something goes wrong, you're not just unhappy, there is no you. You lose your sense of you, your value, and why you are here. Jesus shows there is no sustained core if we build on anything but God. We have no name. To live in God's kingdom means to get an identity that lasts. Who are you, really? Can you go this deep to answer the question? Do you have a name? Or is your identity in what you do or have? Is your job or family your name? Is there a you there? A number of years ago, my friend Brian Habig helped me tremendously with this in a sermon he was preaching from Romans about union with Christ. And he says, you know, think for a moment about your most annoying spiritual struggle. Let's say in the midst of that struggle, you go to God to, for forgiveness. And let's say you believe you've got it. But in that moment of confession, are you a forgiven old you that you've always been? Or are you a forgiven new you? 
Because if deep down you think that you are a forgiven old you, my guess is you're not having a whole lot of success over overcoming that sin. You know, again, when I was in campus ministry, I worked with a lot of college students and Christian men who just were in the grips of a struggle with, with pornography. Uh, and it was almost universal, quite frankly, and I'm guessing those haunts still infect many of us, uh, male and female right now. But what's interesting, though, is how the internal conversations that go inside these young men that I spoke to, they, they can really be heartbreaking because there's this cycle of failure and, and, and prayer for forgiveness and then failure again that I could see got really old really quickly. But see, Paul would like to change that internal conversation. Look, think about this in the way you would process something as, as shameful as pornography. Because if you begin to go through that struggle for forgiveness and you think that you are still the old you who's just trying to fight pornography, you're really at a fork in the road where there's this voice inevitably inside that's going to be saying, hey, look, I know you believe in Jesus, uh, but this is who you are. This is what you've always done. I realize you might make a little bit of progress for a little bit of time here uh, with this habit that you've formed, but actually, this is who you are. Can you feel how debilitating that would be? And, and what's true is that feels true in the moment. But see, at that moment, Paul is saying, stop and think about the story of who you are because it's critical. Because Paul wants you to be, but Paul wants you to understand that God is not saying you know, that you'll always be this porn-loving person, and hopefully you'll get to heaven one day when you die, and then when you're done, you'll be freed from it. What he's saying is, is whether you feel it or not, the, the pornography-loving person that I used to be was killed, and you're a new person. So now, is it, is it that we've learned to flawlessly apply this? Of course not. Is it that I've mastered this? No. But I just want you to ask this question, how different... Would the internal conversation that I was having in my head be if my narrative was not, you know, I really hope I get this together in time so that I can feel better about who I am spiritually, but rather, no, I'm a new self. <laughs> I'm learning to live out of what God has made me to be. The achievement of status is done. That strikes me as a game changer. And so here's Habig's question. Are you trying to stay friends with someone who was killed? There's something about the Christian life that feels like you're wearing something. And early on, when you try it on, it, feels, it makes you feel like a freak. But God says, look, I see you as new. I see the you that you are now when I view you. And when I see your obedience, I see you being yourself, your true self. You guys, look. I just find that to be a radically different conversation and a radically different approach to Christian growth. Look, and I realize a lot of you are saying, <clears throat> okay, I don't know whether that's true of me. How do I know whether that's true of me? Well, that brings me to the third point. We've looked at what you were. We've looked at what you've become. But thirdly, we need to look at what we are called to become. You know, what you get there in verse 25 through 32 <laughs> is a huge therefore. In other words, Paul starts to unpack exactly what life is like for the person who has, as he says, learned Christ. And honestly, this is an incredible list that probably each one deserves its own uh, sermon. But I also think that there's a beauty of kind of taking them all at one time and just letting these things sort of wash over you. And what I want you to do is I want you to stop and consider about how this new self 
replaces the old self. Paul gives us five things. The first thing he says is, is truth begins to replace falsehood. Look at verse 25. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. Isn't it interesting that Paul goes first to what comes out of your mouth to talk about who you are? In other words, this new transformation that Jesus is bringing is going to change your heart. And Jesus makes it pretty clear that out of the mouth, the heart speaks. You know what a heart is by what comes out of your mouth. Well, what kinds of things come out of your mouth? Because it'll give you a sense of the condition of your heart. And Paul says the change that happens is you don't have to lie anymore. You can speak the truth to yourself and to others because I'm not protecting anything. Secondly, he says, control replaces anger. Look at verse 26. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Hey, by the way, be careful how you take that. I've talked to a lot of uh, young married folks who get really nervous that it's somehow wrong to go get a good night's sleep until you and your spouse have worked the problem out. Um, You know, sometimes a good night's sleep is the best thing that can happen uh, to marital conflict. But what Paul is saying is that any anger that you can't put to bed at night is controlling you. You're enslaved by it. But Paul assures us that it's possible to be angry and not to sin. And so the question you have to ask is, can I live with myself when I'm angry? Because if not, I didn't learn Christ that way. Because my anger's got somewhere to go and I can control it. He's teaching me that. Thirdly, Paul says, liberality replaces theft. Look at verse 28. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. It's interesting. Paul has talked about our mouth. Now he starts going to our possessions, our stuff. In other words, what you keep and what you give away is a very sure measure of where your heart is. Look, remember, we talked about the heart again a few weeks ago. And Jesus says, you know, for where your treasure is, there will also be your heart. It's not a mystery where my heart is because I've just got to follow where my money, my fixations, my entertainments. When I follow those down, I know where they're going. And instead of having to hoard those things because I'm so afraid, I can now be liberal with them. I can let people have them. I can give it away. Let them labor truthfully. Fourthly, Paul says, let blessing talk replace corrupting talk. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. I love it. Another speaking exhortation here. In other words, he's saying, I want to make sure that the words that come out of my mouth are helping others and not making people worse for the hearing. Hey, when was the last time that you use your words not to defend yourself, like I feel like I'm always doing, but to make someone else's day. I had a conversation with a really good friend of mine from high school years after we had graduated where we suddenly realized that the only language that we had between us as young men was the language of sarcasm. Now, why was that the case? I think largely because in high school you're just that insecure. It really helps you to learn the, the ancient art of cutting someone else down. But I'm telling you, Find ways to use your words for other people's blessing, and you don't need to cut them down. Why? Because Paul says this transformation of the heart has kept you from needing that. Number five, he then says finally that kindness should replace animosity. 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. I love that he uses the word bitterness there because, you know, a bitter taste in your mouth is very noticeable, is it not? Same. Bitterness in your heart is also extremely noticeable. And we have to deal with it. 
But how do we deal with that? Paul says, what I want you to do is I want you to replace that bitterness with kindness. And the only way in which you do that is if you have a well somewhere inside of your life from which you can draw joy and kindness. Where do you think Paul thinks that comes from? Hey, look, here's the point. Once grace enters into this this motivational center of your personality, then all of a sudden a new you emerges that loves the things that the object of your affection loves as well. Does that make sense? You always pattern your life after whatever it is that you've looked and found joy in. And when Christ comes and shows his kindness to his people in the cross, the joy that comes from that, it makes me live like his life looked. The old person that I was ceases to exist. And Paul is saying, so step up into that. Live like that's true. There's no way to not finish with this illustration. It's one I think I heard first from Kurt years ago. Uh, But it's the old illustration about St. Augustine. St. Augustine was an early church father, uh, sort of ministered there in northern Africa, uh, who, before he became a Christian, he just lived a pretty rough life. A lot of partying, a lot of women, a lot of craziness. But after he was converted and became a Christian, um, God just gave a radical transformation to him. But he still was on the same location with a lot of these old friends of his. And on one particular day, he was walking down the street and he passed an old lover. And um, as he walked by, he acknowledged her presence and nodded to her and passed right on by. Well, the lover was fairly offended and she spun around and she was like, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine said he turned around and looked at her and said, yes, but it is not I. That's totally fair. It's fair for a Christian to talk like that because of what Paul says. Because he's saying, look, at a psychological level, the way you think about yourself determines how you will live. And if I think of myself as this old man and I see my world through those eyes, my life looks like that. But all of a sudden the cross enters in and gives me the chance to live by grace. Then all of a sudden my life lays out in a very different way, does it not? Let's pray that God would sort of fashion us into just those kinds of people, new creatures in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you give us grace then to see this? By your spirit, would you open up these places inside of our heart that need to be dealt with? Thank you for this description of what we ought to look like, but we know we fall short. And so would you again drive us to the cross for the grace and the joy of forgiveness that you gave to us? But not only that, the fact that you've made us to be new creatures in Christ, that we are new men and women in Christ. Would you convince us of that by your spirit? For we ask it all in Jesus' name.